Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, October 14th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The Washington Post reported that the Biden administration is closing in on a familiar name to lead the FDA. We'll discuss the implications from that news and hear from Stats' Nicholas Florco about the process by which the White House is picking a new commissioner. And we'll discuss the latest news in life scientists, including the ongoing booster debate, some upheaval in the world of genome editing, and some newsy nuggets dropped by Scott Gottlieb. But first, a word from our sponsor. I'm really glad you were the one to say newsy nuggets. Newsy nuggets. Newsy nuggets. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. Thanks for listening. As the company that pioneered the biotech industry, Genentech is known for asking and answering big scientific questions. I'm joined by the company's Chief Diversity Officer, Quita Highsmith, to hear why asking tough questions about health inequity can be a powerful driver of change. Thanks, Angus. As marginalized communities continue to be hit hardest by the pandemic, The need to tackle systemic inequity has never been more urgent. We need to stop tiptoeing around the issues of race and health disparities and shine a spotlight on the uncomfortable truths. Why are clinical trials 85% white? Why should your health be defined by your zip code? We at Genentech are investing deeply and partnering across the healthcare ecosystem to help dismantle the status quo. Visit gene.com slash askbiggerquestions to learn more. That's G-E-N-E dot com slash askbiggerquestions. So Meg, let's start with those newsy nuggets from Scott Gottlieb. You had a little chat with him this morning. I did. I got to talk with Dr. Gottlieb for about 45 minutes on Thursday morning at the Cebu Conference for Business Journalists. And he said a lot of really interesting things about where we are in the pandemic. But one update was a kind of disappointing one for parents. The vaccine for kids under age five is likely to be delayed by a few months. This is apparently news that he made on Face the Nation on Sunday and and didn't really get picked up widely. And I I missed that interview. And usually I watch because he often does make news. He's on the board of Pfizer. So he, he has information about these timelines. And he said that the FDA is essentially looking for more information um, on the vaccine for kids under five, so down to age six months. Um, and that could push out the timelines into the first quarter of next year. We had been hoping from comments that Gottlieb himself has made, as well as Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, that data for kids um, that young were just about a month or two behind um, the data down to age five. And we know that that is moving through the FDA process and the CDC process um, with an expectation that could be available in early November. But now it sounds like we're going to have to wait longer for a vaccine for younger kids. Um, And we should get more clarity on this at FDA's October 26th advisory committee meeting on the vaccine for kids five to 11. But I know that's going to disappoint a lot of parents. And and frankly, as a parent of an almost three-year-old, it it bummed me out. But I am glad to know there's going to be a lot of like what sort of information is the FDA looking for? I know? don't know. He didn't go into details on that. Mm. Um, I don't know if it's a larger safety database um, because there's only so much you can really gather from from trials of this size. You're not going to pick up those super rare, you know, myocarditis effects in a trial that's three thousand kids. Um, and so it's it's not exactly clear to me what they're looking for. But we should learn more about this in a couple weeks, I think. So, Demi, I guess it was a CureVac pivot 
this week, too. There was something that, so CureVac, people may know, is another messenger RNA-focused company, which was developing another messenger RNA vaccine for COVID-19. The news this week is that they are withdrawing that vaccine from the approval process in Europe, which was not terribly surprising because I think we talked about this on the podcast before. The data that they got in a phase three trial was not very compelling at all, especially in the context of what we'd seen from the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. What I thought was interesting, because kind of lower down in the press releases, is CureVac mentioned quite naturally that they will focus on their second generation uh, mRNA vaccines for COVID, which are partnered with GlaxoSmithKline. But and, and this is a little bit in the weeds, but for future of mRNA reasons, I thought it was interesting. So the mRNA vaccines that, that we know and love here in the United States, they owe their existence in many ways to scientists whose names you've probably heard, Katalin Kadiko and Drew Weissman, who made this key discovery that if you make a small modification to messenger RNA, it will more easily get past the immune system and better do its job, whether that be as a vaccine or a therapeutic. And that is key to the the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. CureVac has long maintained that that little tweak is not necessary, that you can use mRNA much as it occurs in nature. And yes, it will stir up more of an immune response. But if you're making a vaccine, you want an immune response. And if you do it this way, you can use a lower dose. And theoretically, that'll be better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, as as I mentioned, (laughs) their first attempt at a COVID vaccine did not go terribly well. And in that press release, CureVac said that they are also looking at modified mRNA, which is a little bit of a heresy when you consider this company has existed for more than a decade on the idea that this modification was unnecessary. So I thought that was kind of interesting in the, you know, I don't know if CureVac will ever successfully develop a COVID-19 vaccine. I don't know how much people are really waiting with bated breath on that. We have something like seven or eight authorized around the world um, that work pretty well. But it was kind of interesting as if, if you've followed the, the mRNA development as sort of a, a point in the column of the modified uh, team and a point against the naturally occurring mRNA team, which is kind of something to watch on just like the science angle moving forward with this technology. You know, Damien, one of the really interesting things about this is that it seems to signal that CureVac and, of course, GSK think that there is a second generation life for COVID vaccines. Um, Are they planning on competing in the variant specific vaccines? Is this just a a business bet that this is going to become endemic and we're going to be needing seasonal COVID vaccines like we need seasonal flu vaccines? What do you think this decision really says about um, the future of living with COVID? Yeah, I think it's kind of all of the above from the perspective of of GSK and CureVac. From that press release, they suggested they're going to do basically like a phase one bake-off of, you know, variant-specific vaccines, multivalent vaccines, modified, unmodified, and then decide which to take into phase three. But implied within that is that, you know, they believe someone's going to want to buy it if it works, which is to say that there would be an endemic uh, market for for vaccines in the years to come, or for COVID-19 vaccines in the years to come. I think the other thing that, and they, they didn't say this, but I think it's reasonable to assume, a lot of vaccine companies are looking at COVID-19 as this really good proving ground for whatever their technology is, for whatever their commercial market is, because there is such demand for these vaccines. And then you could theoretically build off of that, as we know uh, Pfizer, Moderna, BioNTech are planning to do with the flu, with RSV, and with other viruses. So I think, you know, CureVac and and to some extent, GSK missed the first round, which is probably the most lucrative round when it comes to COVID-19. But I think they still see an opportunity um, as this is a proving ground, really, for the technology. Hmm. Um, Over in another uh, sphere of biotech this week, there were some really interesting updates from Allergene and CRISPR Therapeutics. It's been kind of a roller coaster week, particularly for Allergene. Adam, can you fill us in? 
Yeah, Meg, you know, both Allergene and CRISPR therapeutics are developing what are called off-the-shelf uh, CAR-T cell therapies for cancer. And so these were, you know, unlike the current crop of approved CAR-T therapies that, that have to be made for each individual patient, what Allergene and CRISPR therapeutics are doing are they're using various forms of genome editing to create these kind of off-the-shelf, on-demand um, therapies that any patient can use at any time. Uh, and like you said, Allergene had a little bit of a setback this week in that um, when they were uh, following one patient in, in their ongoing clinical trial, they found what they described as a chromosomal abnormality in some of those engineered cells that were present in the patient. Um, because of the risk that that may present to the patient, um, obviously they alerted the FDA and the FDA uh, asked Allergene to place their programs on clinical hold. And I guess what I'm curious about about that is, I mean, that obviously affected the stock. Investors thought that was very serious. But then we got this update from CRISPR Therapeutics on its similar program um, that right. the street basically looked at and said, these data don't look as good as Allergene's. CRISPR stock dropped. Allergene's went up like 20%, even though they have this, this issue. And it seemed like the perspective was, but their data look better. And it, it seems like people think they're going to work through this issue. How did you interpret all that? Yeah, I mean, it's really fluid situation right now, right? So Allergene has this, has this issue with this chromosomal abnormality. They're not exactly sure why it happened. It seems like it's a rare event, and it seems like it almost it almost was only discovered because they had this one patient who had some adverse events, and they actually went in and biopsied the patient, and they and they discovered this. Um, but they're not really sure what it means for the patient, um, whether this is actually going to be putting the patient at risk. So then you have the CRISPR data, that, the CRISPR therapeutics data, data that came out, um, and yeah, right. I mean, sort of a similar approach. They they use CRISPR as their genome editing technology, which is different from allergenes, um, and you know the Again, they had some results, which you know were an improvement over what they showed before. But still, there's this question: the fundamental question about these off-the-shelf CAR T therapies is how durable are the responses? Like you can get complete responses in patients that are sort of comparable to what you see in the patient-specific CAR Ts, but they don't seem to last as long, and that's an issue. And so that's kind of been the debate when the CRISPR therapeutics data came out. You know the durability, and and we we tend to measure these at least in these preliminary studies. They look at sort of the the complete response rates at six months, which is kind of a key measure of durability, and those rates are look they look lower than what Allergene has shown, and they look lower certainly look lower than what we see from the patient specific to currently approved CAR T therapies. So that's kind of an ongoing issue. Now, one kind of intriguing wrinkle here is that because these off the shelf therapies are kind of on demand. There is the potential that you can actually use them. You can redose a patient. So if a patient comes in and maybe doesn't get an optimal response, or if a patient actually relapses and progresses, you can give the patient another dose, um, which is something that's much more difficult to do with a patient-specific CAR T. So it seems like going forward, that's a strategy that these companies like Allergene, like CRISPR therapeutics, like CRISPR therapeutics, are going to use to see whether or not they can boost efficacy and durability. So keeping up with the what feels like years that we've been talking about whether people need third or, or in one case, second doses of COVID-19 vaccines, this is a big week 
for that debate. And it's sort of awkwardly timed because as we record this, uh, a panel of FDA advisors are weighing in on whether uh, Moderna's vaccine, uh, the data behind it rather, justify authorizing a third dose. And on Friday, Johnson & Johnson will basically go before that same scientific firing squad. But Meg, what's what's at stake here? Like we saw this happen with with the Pfizer vaccine, which, as people know, was authorized for for booster doses. What did we learn from that experience and and what should we be expecting from this sort of two day uh, event, I guess, for lack of a better term? Yeah. Booster Palooza. (laughs) Booster Palooza, Booster Bonanza. Um, So what we learned from the Pfizer process is that there is a lot of dissent and debate about who should get boosters when, uh, what the purpose of boosting is. But the overall takeaway is that the U.S. government, its health officials have decided folks need boosters and we're going to make that happen. Uh, And so we saw that messy process play out from the FDA and its advisory committee and then the CDC and its advisory committee for Pfizer. This morning, uh, this is Thursday morning, Um, The advisors are talking about Moderna's booster, which is slightly even more complicated because it's a half-dose booster. So um, it's 50 micrograms for the boost compared with 100 for the primary series. Uh, I won't speculate too much on what we're going to see coming out of this, only to say I've been following Matt Herper and Helen Branswell's amazing live blog. Uh, As we've been recording the podcast, they're watching the meeting and and they're already pointing out there could be a lot of confusion around um, that half-dose. We're hearing again from um, Israel's uh, health ministry to talk about their experience with boosters. Um, And I think some of the most fascinating stuff is going to be perhaps tomorrow when the NIH presents its data on mixing and matching boosters. We saw those data posted on a preprint server on Wednesday afternoon, and it's just antibody data, but it and it and it only uses the high dose of Moderna. So it's 100 micrograms in this study. So it's not even going to translate to what the boosters are actually going to be. But this matters for millions of people who are more than six months out from their Moderna or J&J shots who are waiting for guidance on a booster. And commercially, for the companies, it matters because the competition, as you were just talking about with CureVac, uh, going forward is going to be over who is the booster shot of choice. And uh, that's playing into a lot of the valuation of these companies. Um, And we're in the early days here. Um, But it seems like almost no matter what, there is going to be a recommendation for boosters for Moderna and J&J, but there's pressure on the FDA to broaden the um, application of these boosters to everybody under age 65. The FDA has asked its advisors to talk about this today, which is kind of interesting because they got narrowed the first time around. And now, you know, a couple of weeks later, they're like, oh, but do you think we should broaden it again? So it's fascinating. So Meg, you, you mentioned the mix and match thing. And I, I know there was some data, I think, that came out that suggested that people who were originally vaccinated with the J&J shot might benefit more from getting a different type of COVID vaccine. So like either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. Does that does that factor into this two day meeting? You know, it's really interesting, the timing of when they're talking about stuff, particularly on Friday. So basically, the committee is being asked to vote on its recommendations for giving a J&J booster to a J&J primary vaccine um, in the early afternoon on Friday. And then the NIH presents its data on mix and match. And so it makes it really difficult for the committee to incorporate any thoughts about mixing and matching into these votes on recommendations that they're going to be making. But from the preprint data, it was clear, at least based on the antibody responses, that all of the combinations um, boosted antibody levels past a threshold that they say in previous studies has equated with 90% vaccine efficacy. All combinations except J&J plus J&J. Now, a lot of people make the argument J&J's vaccine protection isn't 
driven by antibodies the way the mRNA vaccines are. It, it's driven by T cells, and that provides the long-lasting res- um, protection against severe disease. But it's really difficult when all you've got are antibody studies. So it's just a big, confusing jumble, and it's just the latest one of those that uh, these advisors are being asked to talk about. We are now 10 months into the Biden presidency, and the FDA still lacks a permanent commissioner. FDA veteran Janet Woodcock continues to run the agency on an interim basis, albeit with a ticking clock, while Biden officials vet potential nominees. And four hours after we started recording this podcast, there was a report that changed everything. The Washington Post reported that uh, the White House is closing in on Dr. Robert Califf as its choice to lead the agency. Of course, Dr. Califf is a former FDA commissioner in the Obama administration, a familiar face, um, fascinating potential pick. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one of those picks where like you, you think, well, yeah, sure, he could do that job. I mean, he's he did it before. He was he spent about a year right as FDA commissioner at the end of the Obama administration. Um, it seems like kind of a safe pick, but also someone who like he knows the agency well. Uh, he knows Washington well. So, uh, you know, if I guess the question is whether he can get confirmed. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like the reaction among a lot of people who are who are in the know um, about this on Thursday was, yeah, this is a safe pick. This is kind of boring, um, but it seems like the kind of thing that you could get through. But that seems to to ignore the fact that, you know, maybe people remember the Obama administration as, as more tranquil than it was. But there are Democratic senators, some of whom have aligned against Janet Woodcock and have, have suggested they won't vote for her, who voted against Robert Califf because of his ties to the drug industry. And they perceived him as being soft on the opioid crisis. So the notion, if this is what the White House is thinking, that Califf would be a safer bet than Woodcock, I don't totally understand where that's coming from. I also think it's just fascinating because, yes, opioids have been discussed as one of the main reasons Democratic senators oppose Janet Woodcock. Um, but another more recent criticism of her is the whole Eteplerson decision, the, the Sarepta Duchenne muscular dystrophy drug. Janet was the key actor there, but Califf was commissioner when that decision was made and he upheld uh, Janet's decision. Um, I don't know how much that kind of thing will come up, but it's a controversial recent decision. And I think the reaction I've been just kind of asking around to to biotech folks to try to see what they think about Califf. And they're like, yeah, you know, pretty good pick, pretty friendly to the pharmaceutical industry. And of course, that always gets criticism from Democrats. Meg, to your point about Tepperson and, and Califf's role in that controversial approval decision, you know, he did sort of the classic thing as FDA commissioner of allowing his the deputies, you know, the people underneath him, including Janet Woodcock at the time, to make those drug approval decisions. Like, you know, remember when we talked to Gottlieb uh, a few weeks ago, you know, he said, you know, FDA commissioners just rarely get involved in the kind of day to day drug reviews, drug approval decisions. They they just don't. That's not their role at the agency. And I think in the in the in the case of Interpolson and Califf, I mean, he that's what he did. Right. He he basically said to Janet Woodcock, you know, this look, this is your decision. You need to make this decision and I will support you, but I'm not going to get involved. And so maybe that gives a, a sense of kind of what he would be like in his second stint 
as an FDA commissioner where he would, you know, delegate those kind of responsibilities down to the people who are more directly involved. One other thing, and this might be a little bit galaxy brain, but looking to his potential confirmation hearing, and again, the Post reported that that uh, the White House is closing in on him, not that he is the guy necessarily. But looking forward to that, we mentioned the potential opposition from Democrats who have opposed him in the past. But even on the Republican side, in his post-FDA career, Robert Califf has spent a lot of time um, working with Verily, which is a company owned by Google, which is a major tech company. And big tech, now albeit this has been more in the sort of freedom of speech uh, world, but big tech has come under a lot of scrutiny from the Republican Party in in recent, I guess, years, but, but mostly months. And so I wonder if in this future confirmation hearing that we've imagined, Califf might not only face the criticism that he's too close to the drug industry, et cetera, but that he's too close to the tech industry. And granted, you know, the FDA is not terribly involved in regulating big tech, but just in terms of political appearances, the the sort of optics of it, I could see that becoming an additional issue. I do think it's really interesting how we've ended up at this point with a potential former FDA commissioner as the the pick, um, because it's been so long, and we'll go into this um, with our colleague Nick Florco, um, it's been so long that we haven't had a permanent commissioner. And from my understanding, they needed to look for somebody who really understood how to run the agency. Uh, and that's why it's been helpful, at least according to folks like Gottlieb, to have Woodcock in that position for so long. Um, but we also know this is administration that's really valued diversity. Um, and, you know, this is a, a former leader of the FDA who's a white dude. Um, and so, you know, they say at the bottom of the Washington Post article that they had been looking for a more diverse candidate, but, um, you know, they ended up with with Dr. Califf. Uh, and so it's just kind of interesting to think about how the process has gone up to this point and how they settled on Dr. Califf. And Meg, so you mentioned uh, our colleague uh, Nick Florco. So we have to we have to level with our our dear listeners to this podcast and and kind of make an admission here that this discussion that the three of us are having about Califf, we're actually having this conversation and recording it well after we had finished what we thought was the finished podcast for this week. You know, breaking news is breaking news and we had to kind of come back and talk about it. But I want to mention Nick and the story that he published this morning about the Biden administration and this vetting process trying to find an FDA commissioner. And he had some some new news and some new disclosures for some really interesting things. Let's hear from Nick right now. Nick, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. So, Nick, what have you learned about the search process and who's helping Biden fill this crucial vacancy at the FDA? So I've learned that the Biden administration is, first of all, I mean, casting a wide net for names, which is probably not surprising at this moment, given where we are. Um, but they're relying on some sort of well-known insiders for advice on who to tap. So the Biden administration is being fed names from from a group of insiders who are well-known in the Biden administration. I mean, they include Peggy Hamburg, who's the F former FDA commissioner under President Obama, uh, and Greg Simon, who led Biden's Cancer Moonshot Initiative. And then folks that actually get in the door and are considered for a role will also likely interview with one of two famous doctors, uh, Tony Fauci and the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. Uh, and I should say, we don't know exactly where Fauci and Murthy fit into the entire vetting process, but not everyone gets an interview with them, it seems. So it's a good sign someone's being considered if they get an interview with these folks. 
You know, I was just talking with Scott Gottlieb at this Cebu conference this morning, um, and he pointed out, you know, Janet Woodcock has been a steady hand at the helm of FDA through this pandemic. And it's really important to have somebody in there who understands how to run an agency, understands how Washington and the FDA works. Uh, what do you gather about you know, this pool of candidates and, and that level of experience and, and how important you think that is and how important the administration perceives that to be and, and kind of what characteristics you gather are being looked for here? So it's a hard question because, I mean, generally you do expect some level of D.C. experience or some level of, of uh, government experience writ large. Um, but you know, the, the last FDA commissioner, Steve Hahn, sort of broke that mold. I mean, he he'd had no FDA experience previously. Uh, you look at somebody like Scott, which you already mentioned, um, and of course, he had a lot of uh, D.C. experience. He had a, a top job at the FDA, had a top job at CMS. He sort of knew... You know, he knew where the bathroom was when he got in there the first day. <laughs> so, Nick, has this search process you know, dragged on so long to the point that maybe few people actually want the job? And I guess I think that, you know, I think back to the last time we went through this process, you know, there were people who were kind of almost directly lobbying for the job or indirectly lobbying for it. And we don't seem to hear that this time. So it's sort of the the rumor around town that there are people who the administration has approached about the job some multiple times and who are just aren't interested in it because it's been such a cluster. Uh, it's hard to say how real that is, mostly because no one is willing to tell reporters who those people are. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, the, the friend in high school who claims that, you know, he has a girlfriend at another school, but you never meet them and they won't tell you their name. That girlfriend's in Canada. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's hard to trust that that is the case. I mean, the FDA commissioner job, even though it's really thankless, is still, I mean, it's a, a pinnacle job for someone's career. And so it's totally possible that there are people out there that have said, I'm not doing this. This has been such a mess. But I don't put too much emphasis on those rumors at this point. So, Nick, do you have a sense as to whether or to what extent this protracted process is affecting morale among like the rank and file at FDA who are showing up to work every day with an interim commissioner and, you know, what has seemed like an apparent disinterest from their president? I mean, I think it's safe to say it has impacted morale, but it's hard to know how much that issue impacts morale versus just the last year and a half or even longer for the FDA. I mean, I think rank and file folks at the FDA are not happy, um, but I think they're not happy because they had a really rough ride under the Trump administration. They've been dealing with COVID and now they have an acting commissioner. So it's hard to separate that out. Um, and I mean, just to sort of zoom back even even further, I mean, it's, it's hard to say, frankly, how this has impacted the agency writ large, not just morale, sort of the ability to get the job done. I mean, it's been a rough few months for the FDA. I mean, from the booster debacle that I'm sure you all have talked about to Agihelm, which I, I know you all have talked about, uh, and it feels like those things would have happened if Janet Woodcock was the acting com uh, was the actual commissioner, not just the acting commissioner. I mean, uh, because because she was at the helm of, of with those decisions. I mean, the, the concern with actings is usually that they're some sort of stranger to the agency or some low level bureaucrat who is a gun shy about making decisions. And that's not Janet Woodcock. I mean, I think we're getting a good feel of what a permanent commissioner Janet Woodcock would do at the agency. Um, and so it's hard to it's hard to say how much it's actually impacted their ability to do their job. It's it's a very different scenario than a normal acting commissioner. But I think it's interesting that, uh, Meg, you brought up Scott saying that, you know, uh, Janet's kept everything on an even keel. I mean, it, 
to me, it's felt like a pretty tumultuous few months at the agency. There's been a lot of controversies. And I think that, uh, you know, folks that are thinking about her candidacy are probably weighing those as well. So can you explain to us this whole thing about the Vacancies Act and how long Janet Woodcock can actually remain an interim FDA commissioner? Okay, yeah, I am a nerd for these legal technicalities. So guys, interrupt (laughs) me if I go too deep here, but I will try to be brief. Um, Nerd out, Nick. Just go ahead. (laughs) Basically, there's a a law that says acting officials can only serve in the acting role for 300 days at the start of the administration. That means that Woodcock technically has until mid-November before she can no longer hold the role. But as I discovered in my reporting, it's pretty unlikely that Janet Woodcock sort of rides into the sunset before Thanksgiving. If someone else is nominated for the position, Woodcock stays in the acting role while the Senate considers that nomination. That could take weeks or even months. If that nominee is rejected, Woodcock gets another 210 days in the job. And then she can serve as acting for that nominee. And then if that nominee gets rejected, she can serve for another 210 days in the job. So if Biden wanted to keep Woodcock as acting as long as possible, I have a proposition for him. Basically, he should nominate me. (laughs) <laughs> and then nominate Adam. Let us both get clobbered by the Senate. And then Woodcock will stay until the, in the job until 2023. Hey, you know, Nick, I, I think I could make it through the confirmation process. I, uh, Speak for yourself, senators are Senators Speak are very, very cautious about people's tweets, Adam. Uh, and I, I don't <laughs> know if you have their, a good track record there. What about their draft tweets folder? As soon as, we, as soon as we finish recording, I'm going to start cleansing my Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but more seriously, I will say that this law is also sort of full of loopholes. Um, that the Biden administration can use uh, to keep Woodcock in absent just nominating me and Adam for the job. Um, I mean, first of all, there's no real penalty for actually violating the law. Uh, Technically, the FDA can be sued if Woodcock tries to perform a duty that's reserved for the commissioner. Um, But there's really few of them. And there are things like issuing mandatory food recalls. And the FDA lawyers are smart, and they realize that they can literally get around that rule by just having the HHS secretary, Javier Becerra, issue a recall notice. And so it's basically just like a it's a paperwork exercise. If you if you make sure you follow the letter of the law, Woodcock can stay in there, uh, essentially, uh, you know, violating the law without any real uh, any real repercussions for the agency. You know, some of the criticisms of, of Woodcock, I guess, from from Democratic senators um, have been around the opioid crisis and um, her involvement in clearing opioids through the FDA years ago. Um, do you think those are fair, Nick, or, or do people you speak to think those are fair criticisms? I just finished the amazing book about the Sacklers, Empire of Pain. And um, in that book, uh, it's reported that David Kessler was commissioner when these got cleared through um, the FDA. And uh, he, of course, is a senior advisor to President Biden now. Um, But this could potentially keep Janet Woodcock from reaching that highest role. Is is that fair? It's... And this is a not great answer, but it really depends on on who you ask, at least when you ask me sort of, um, you know, whether folks I, th- I talk to think it's fair. Um, some certain folks certainly do not and have noted that Janet Woodcock has frequently noted that the agency, you know, has has learned and has course corrected. Um, and frankly, a lot of the times I think they think that the FDA had justification for for their previous actions. And then there are folks that are, you know, spitting mad and saying that, you know, Janet Woodcock does not deserve this job just because of, you know, the the lack of uh, foresight there. So, 
I mean, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I, I guess I'll say it's not the craziest uh, objection to a nominee that you could hear from the FDA commissioner. I mean, sometimes you you literally get senators at these uh, confirmation hearings asking about things like their their opinions on you know genetically modified salmon, um, you know <laughs> these really pet issues in their districts, and you know if that was the usually uh, from Alaska. If, yeah, exactly. If that was the issue here. Uh, I would say, you know, this is kind of crazy. The fact that it's opioids and that's such a big public health crisis, I think, is a pretty reasonable thing that would come up during a nomination hearing. Whether Janet Woodcock deserves all of the blame for that is, of course, up for debate. But I mean, I think I'm not surprised that this is at least the issue that has come up repeatedly in this fight. Well, Nick, we'll have you on again uh, when you're nominated. So uh, look (laughs) forward to that. Uh, I am very much looking forward to your nomination hearing, Adam. (laughs) Finally, we'll see the subtweet draft folder. <laughs> <laughs> delete, 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 delete. <laughs> and that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Bonato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you think that Adam could make it through Senate confirmation. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. Deleting those tweets. Uh- <laughs> And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.